With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. What's up, kid folk? Welcome to the number one ranked show. I am your host, RJ Young. Thank you for watching on the Fox Sports app, YouTube, or listening wherever you get your podcasts. Today... We have to talk about Jimbo Fisher versus Nick Saban and what that means for college football in 2022. We also need to talk about a little moving and shaking on the recruiting front with Eli Holstein deciding to commit to Alabama and more importantly, Alabama taking that commitment from a 2023 quarterback. Hello, Arch Manning. And I'm going to get in my super slept on impact transfer candidates right who could be the most impactful transfer of 2022 and i'm also going to do a thing that i'm sure that the rest of you are going to yell at me about which is hey who's going to have a better year one lincoln riley or brent venables yes we've already started fighting and the show has just begun but off the rip we have to talk about eli holstein committing to alabama on tuesday You'll know Eli Holstein was once committed to Texas A&M, right? Six foot four, 220 pounds. He can throw football over the mountains. Look, we're also talking about the eighth ranked quarterback in the 247 sports composite and a top 60 overall recruit. Last year, threw for 3,200 plus yards, 30 touchdowns, just six interceptions, had 523 yards, rushing 14 touchdowns, and then led his team to a 15-0 record and the 5A state championship in Louisiana was Max Preps Louisiana Player of the Year. Now, this is pretty outstanding. And if you're Alabama, you certainly wanted a quarterback from Louisiana in the 2023 class. However, this is not the quarterback that many Alabama fans wanted to see commit from the 2023 class, right? That would be one Arch Manning, right? Coming out of Isidore Newman, you'll note this is Cupper's kid and Peyton and Eli's nephew. Also, we'll know that Archie Manning, for whom he is the namesake, has been overseeing much of what we call, you know, the recruiting journey for one Arch Manning. And what has been remarkable about Arch's journey is just how siloed off he has been from the rest of what I think of as the known world because he still drives his pickup truck to school and he still keeps his job. He mostly has been able to push away all the popularity and fame that comes with being not just the number one quarterback in the 2023 class, but the nephew of Peyton Eli who each have won Super Bowls and 
the grandson of Archie Manning, who is a legend for New Orleans Saints and the Ole Miss Rebels. Now, as we were talking about this on Monday before the Nick Saban took a commitment on Tuesday, Archie Manning, or I should say Arch Manning, excuse me, was down to just three schools as we so saw it, setting visits to th- those three schools in June. Those would be Texas, Georgia, and Alabama. Now, we have to believe that Texas and Georgia are the two most likely places for him to commit. And being that he might keep with what we understand the cycle to be, probably going to try to make his commitment before the start of his senior season. We'll see how that is. And you want to have a quarterback in the class as soon as possible, which is one of the reasons why I thought it was interesting that Nick Saban decided to take Eli Holstein's commitment. Now, this does not preclude Alabama from taking a commitment from Arch Manning. I genuinely believe Coach Saban will continue to recruit Arch Manning to Tuscaloosa. What this comes down to is, do you want to be the only quarterback in a class, or do you want to be one of two quarterbacks in a class? Worked out at Alabama for Tua Tonga Valoa, right? And one, Matt, right? Uh, I say Matt because, well, it's interesting just to say Matt, because uh, if I say Matt, I could also be talking about any number of players, but you know what I'm talking about. Anyway, point that I'm saying is, I don't think that Archie Manning, or I keep saying Archie, Arch Manning would be the dude that wants to go into a class with another four-star quarterback for which he's going to compete with. To which a lot of you will probably say, hey, kid's scared of competition. I'm like, nah, actually, not really. I don't know. I, I think I think you want to be the dude. You know, and this is, uh, we should have an F1 counter because I'm going to make another F1 reference. You want to be the number one driver in the seat. You don't want to be the number two driver in the seat, and you certainly don't want to be dueling with somebody. You want everybody to understand Hey, Checo, let Max buy. That's what you want. And, you know, if you are the number one player in the class, the number one quarterback in the class, that's what you should get. Full stop. Like, I'm there with it, right? So we've seen what it might mean for, like, Mac Jones and what it might mean for Tua Tagovailoa. But I just, the more I look at what Arch Manning might be after, the more it's like, okay, are you going to let me throw the ball? Are you going to have a chance to win national championships. Am I going to be the guy? I don't know if that's on his list of things to want to do, but for Mac Jones, uh, it certainly wasn't worth yelling at Tua or Coach Staben about. But again, more to the point, it's about what can you get for yourself? I tend to believe that if Mac Jones could have, say, gone to Florida and been the starter immediately or been the one guy that they were depending on to start, he might have done that, right? But he didn't. Now, this is also interesting for me because I think that we're going to be talking about Arch Manning and choosing Texas or Georgia or Alabama, for that matter. And what we're saying is the SEC is going to get Arch Manning, right? And if you know the SEC is going to eventually get Arch Manning, the question that you still have is, does Ole Miss have a shot? Does LSU have a shot? They would tell you that they do, but I would tell you that they would not. Which is another way of saying if Arch Manning decided to pick Texas over Georgia, a lot of people would be immediately interested in what Texas is doing and how they are doing it because you take a look at the 2022 roster and what they could be returning in 2023, it's kind of disgusting. Do you want to be on that roster as they're on their way up? Do you want to be the the dude that got them back to what Vince Young led them to in 2005? 
that's intoxicating as opposed to Georgia, where it feels like you don't have to be the best player on the team to win a national championship like Vince Young at Texas. You could be Stetson Bennett, a walk-on who had to go to JUCO to get back to Georgia and then had to outlast Jamie Newman and JT Daniels to get a shot to run the offense where, hey, man, all we're asking you to do is not make mistakes because we have game changers on the outside and behind you, which is interesting because that was how Nick Saban had once built his football team and then Johnny Manziel stunted all over him and Lane Kiffin decided, hey, would you like to go get a dude like Johnny Manziel? And Nick Saban said, I would very much like that, very much. And now quarterback is a strength for them. So now Eli Holstein joins Ty Thompson and I got to believe Jalen Milrow in what could be an outstanding uh, run of quarterbacks for Alabama. I really want to see Jalen Milrow play quarterback. And I think I will because Bryce Young's going to get drafted after this year. We'll see what Jalen decides to do. But and you heard me mention earlier that Jimbo Fisher had once secured the commitment of one Eli Holstein. Now that gives me an opportunity to talk about Jimbo Fisher versus Nick Saban. Okay. So I've talked about this a bit on the YouTube channel and on the social medias, but not here on the number one ranked show. So I want to also bring you up to speed on what has occurred. So last Wednesday, Nick Saban sat down in front of business people from Birmingham to more or less opine about why he does not like where college football is headed in this new era of name, image, and likeness. And he decided to name names at this local event saying that Jimbo Fisher, or I should say Texas A&M, paid for every one of its 2022 recruits. You'll know, Texas A&M achieved the number one ranking in the class of 2022 and put together what is statistically the greatest recruiting class of all time one year after Alabama did the same and Alabama finished second in 2022. He also went out of his way to try to ding Jackson State and Deion Sanders saying that they paid Travis Hunter a million dollars to go to Jackson State. Now, a lot to unpack there. The first of which for Jackson State is, hey man, why are we catching these strays for this fight you having with an SEC West foe? Number two, man, they could not even afford to get the water running in the city of Jackson in a pandemic. How do you think that they afforded a million dollars to pay a kid from Georgia to play at an FCS program. Okay. On top of that, Deion Sanders goes out on the tweets, says, hey, man, these are lies. Uh, We didn't pay anybody. We don't have the money to pay anybody. Why is he really trying to do this to us? And Jimbo Fisher took umbrage too, but I thought this was interesting in that Deion Sanders said, look, I don't want to have a private phone call about what you had to say out in public. I need you to say out in public that you were wrong, and then we can talk which is what Nick Saban ended up doing. He went to national folks and was like, hey, I was wrong to single out anybody at all. I should have just focused on the issue, which is that I don't like where we're headed in college football in as far as name, image, and likeness. But before he got a chance to do that, Jimbo Fisher called a press conference not 12 hours after Nick Saban said what he said to this Birmingham business bunch. Jimbo Fisher at 10 a.m. last Thursday, decided to scorch the earth, okay? 
He followed up what I thought was one of the greatest press conferences of all time with the greatest press conference since sliced bread. You know that works because he was referencing some dude that goes by sliced bread who claimed that they had paid for a bunch of players to go to, to A&M. When Nick Saban decided to follow up on that and double down, Jimbo Fisher came out of the woodwork saying, hey, look, number one, we didn't do all that. Number two, let me tell you some things about Nick Saban and decided to castigate Saban without actually saying his name, equating him to God, equating him to the czar of football, saying that we should really investigate how Nick Saban gets down and does business. And there's a lot to unpack there, not the least of which because Jimbo Fisher was offensive coordinator for Nick Saban at LSU when he won his first national championship. And he kept that offensive coordinator job after Nick Saban decided to go to Miami all the way through 2006. When Nick Saban decided to leave Miami to go to Tuscaloosa to be the new head coach at Alabama, Jimbo Fisher was also up for a job at the University of Alabama, Birmingham. They had agreed on what his contract would be and how much he would get paid when at the last minute, University of Alabama trustees, their regents, pulled his contract offer. Now, there's lots to be said about here, but what is alleged is that they did not want anyone to compete with Nick Saban in the state of Alabama for recruits if they could help it. Jimbo Fisher would have definitely been able to do that. And we also know that Jimbo Fisher is an outstanding head coach. He eventually becomes offensive coordinator at Florida State and assumes the head coaching job, leads them to a BCS national championship. But along the way, it felt as if Jimbo and Saban had decided to keep their cordial relationship. And there's been some talk about how cordial or not cordial that relationship has been. Saban waited for over an hour to congratulate Nick Saban on the 2018 national championship run. Uh, and I thought that was interesting for folks to point out. But I also think it's interesting for folks to point out that Jimbo is chummy with Nick Saban in the way that it's interesting to point out that you were once chummy with your ex-wife. Why is that? Why is that a deal? Like that doesn't anybody that's been divorced or been broken up with understands how you can change up quick, fast, and in a hurry. I'm not going to say that Jimbo Fisher is out here speaking out of both sides of his mouth because I have been broken up with and I have been divorced. I understand how both parties might feel and might change up how they feel about each other. So when Jimbo Fisher said Nick Saban tried to call me and I refused to take his call, how does that not sound like a relationship gone bad? You know, you got all of these Instagram jokes about how she blocked his number. You got all these jokes about how, no, 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 no. I got you blocked on all social media. You can no longer contact me. Because one thing or another has led you to be like, this is the last straw. I can't deal with this person anymore because it's so personal. So them being so tight only makes me believe even more that the schism remains for as long as the schism needs to be there. Now, maybe they'll kiss and make up. Maybe Oklahoma fans and Lincoln Riley will kiss and make up. You tell me which one happens before hell freezes over. I'll wait. I just don't see it, man. Now, I think that's all interesting because Saban ended up taking a recruit from what was committed to A&M at one point. But also, I think the A&M's in a really good spot. And if you're looking at Connor Weigman, you're also looking at the dude that's probably going to hold that job 
for the next three years after Haynes King decides to do what he's doing or Mac Johnson decides to do what he's doing. That's a business decision by Eli Holstein. I can see all of that. But what's more interesting is that we're all circling October 8th, 2022 on our calendars for when Alabama and A&M play each other, especially following up with Jimbo Fisher beat Nick Saban in College Station, became the first of two former Saban assistants to beat Nick Saban after nobody had done it before. And he did it with a backup quarterback. And as much as people want to dunk on Jimbo for his development of quarterbacks, kind of players he puts in the NFL, if you're Nick Saban, you're not only supposed to beat Jimbo Fisher in A&M, you're supposed to beat him like they stole something. And your quarterback, Bryce Young, who ends up winning the Heisman Trophy, didn't play his best football then. And doggone near got beat by an Auburn team that tried to fire its head coach in February. Okay, it's a lot there. A lot riding on the line in 2022 for Nick Saban and quite honestly, Jimbo Fisher, who I think should come out of the SEC West, should give Georgia, if nobody else, a run for their money and win the SEC championship and should be competing for their first national championship since 1939. We'll see how much of that falls in line, but it's all here and it's all just in May. I can't wait to see what this looks like once we start playing football. Last thing on this topic is maybe Nick Saban needs to stop talking about stuff in the offseason because it used to be a coach could say whatever they wanted in the offseason because nobody really cared and it didn't really have any traction during the season. That's no longer true because we're talking about a year after Nick Saban decided to tell everybody how much money Bryce Young was taking, okay, which was over a million dollars in NIL deals, and he was saying that as a play as a play to say, come to Alabama, come to Tuscaloosa. He did this in front of the Texas High School Football Coaches Association. It's a big crowd. It's also a crowd you want to impress. So if you want to talk about somebody talking out of both sides of their mouths, how about you talk about Nick Saban and not Jimbo Fisher, who is the aggrieved party in all of this? Okay. Now, before I get out of that real quickly, I also want to mention that the, we missed the head ball coach. We miss Nick. We, excuse me. We we miss Steve Spurrier, who came out saying mm, Jimbo ain't done much. I don't know that Nick was saying anything that wasn't true. And I'm going, man. I wish Steve Spurrier was still coaching football. I really do. Because I wish there were more people just out here saying stuff. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. All right. Now, we are going to debut a new segment for you that we will be, you know, reoccurring for the next three, four weeks called New Faces in New Places, where we are going to evaluate two head coaches, or I should say I am going to evaluate two head coaches and tell you which one of them is most likely to succeed in year one. Not over the length of their time, of their tenure, as stewards of their respective college football programs, all right? 
So this is not a referendum on what Lincoln Riley's career will look like at USC, just what it will look like in 2022. The same is true for Brent Venables. So, so I'm clear here. The, the flavor text on this. RJ predicts how each coach will do in their first year with a new program. We have a lot to choose from, so we could make this, as we are, a reoccurring feature. You know, kind of like what we're doing with the slept on, super slept on, and, you know, obvious transfer candidates for most impactful transfer of 2022. All right. Now, let's start with Lincoln Riley. Year one. For me, it's about not just what you have on the roster, but what does your schedule look like? Because your schedule indicates just how hard it's going to be for you to win football games. I think it's interesting because of the two, that'd be USC and Oklahoma, I think SC has these weaker of the two schedules, which means that I would expect a little bit more from Lincoln Riley in year one. So on September 17th, you have Fresno State, which is interesting because they return Jake Hayner and... Jeff Tedford is going to be back on the sidelines. I'm excited about this, right? Because we watched Caleb DeBoer ended up at Washington, and I think that Fresno State could have USC putting money in the bag. Now, I'm going to have to work hard to get that number because SC is a private school, which means that they don't have to disclose how much money they pay somebody to get you know, their behinds kicked if they, in fact, get their behinds kicked. But I'm going to effort that number because I think that this is a game that USC could lose. Because UCLA looked at Fresno State and was like, no, we got it. Mm-mm. No, you didn't. Mm-mm. You're going to get all of this Jake Hayner. And it was an outstanding game. I remember watching that late until the night. It was a lot of fun. I was listening to it on uh, Fresno State Radio. Those dudes were losing their minds. Like They were <laughs> they were going after the referees. They were going after the opposing coaching staff. They were going after Pac-12. They were going after everybody. Talking about they don't want us to win it. They don't want us to win. I love home radio. It's great. On October 15th, they have what I think is the most pivotal game on their schedule, which is Utah. In a year in which, you know, Kyle Whittingham and the Utes are the defending Pac-12 champs, and everybody wants to act like they don't exist over there in Salt Lake City with the emergence of Lincoln Riley. I'm sure they want to show Lincoln what is really good in the Pac-12. And then, of course, they got Notre Dame on November 26th. We'll know a lot about Notre Dame before then, just like we'll know a lot about USC before then, but I'm really interested to see how Marcus Freeman and Tommy Reese take on Ohio State to open the season and what that means for them down the road. It's not as if they got a cakewalk, but it's it could be fun to watch Notre Dame versus USC in a game that matters. The last time I saw Notre Dame and USC in a game that matters, Notre Dame looked like she should have lost to SC and barely beat a 5-7 and seven SC, and we put them in the college football playoff for that, and then everybody was absolutely, you know, just miffed that... Clemson destroyed Notre Dame in their college football playoff semifinal. Maybe we'll get something similar. I doubt it, but we could. So some star players you should know from USC. Caleb Williams, Jordan Addison, Corey Foreman. I could add more to that list, but I'm going to stop there because, well, it's transfer all Americans over there in South Central. I think that if Caleb Williams plays well, they have an opportunity. Jordan Addison is Jordan Addison. They have an opportunity. Corey Foreman comes on in Alex Grinch's defense. They could be pretty doggone good. It's also about what the offensive line is going to be about. I realize that USC is returning a bunch of really outstanding and veteran offensive linemen. I also don't see any depth behind them if they get hurt. And fact of football, people get hurt on the offensive line. But yeah, people get hurt. I think all those things have to go into your thought process when you're evaluating Lincoln writing in year one. 
And then, recruits for you to know, cornerback Damani Jackson, running back Relief Brown, safety Zion Branch. These are all outstanding 2022 gets for anybody, let alone SC. Relief Brown is a star in the making. Like, you're going to hear his name quite a bit. You're probably going to hear it rhyme with freak because put the do- uh, ball in that dude's hand and let him go. Damani Jackson, we know about that guy. An outstanding corner and could be really the best player that Roy Manning has at corner in 2022. We'll see what Alex Grinch decides to do with that, adding other transfers like Bryson Shaw out of Ohio State to that back end alongside guys like Zion Branch, comes out of Bishop Gorman. Outstanding safety. Could be pretty doggone good. All right, before I give a record for what I think USC could do, you know, both the lowest end and the high end, talk a little bit about Brent Venables. So Brent Venables is coming into year one at Oklahoma with a with an advantage that I haven't seen for, say, Lincoln Riley. I saw the last time I saw this sort of advantage was Arkansas, Sam Pittman. When you have everybody in the state pulling in the same direction, everybody wanted Sam Pittman to take that job. Everybody wanted Sam Pittman to succeed, and they were going to give him time to build the program out in the way that he wanted. And he will tell you, just like Barry Odom will tell you, just like Kendall Bryce will tell you, the state of Arkansas, the city of Fayetteville, Arkansas alumni have had so much to do with how they were able to be successful in 2021 because all they got was positive affirmation. They beat Texas and A&M in the same year, beat Penn State in the Outback Bowl, got nine wins. That's outstanding. That's their best season in over a decade. Really great stuff. And I see that in what Brent Vittables has because he also is the guy that chose to pick Oklahoma after it was spurned by its past partner. That would be Lincoln Riley. It's also a wild just win for Oklahoma because I didn't think that Brent Venables would ever leave Clemson because there had been so many other jobs that popped up for which he was qualified that he just didn't want to take. Kansas State, where he went to college, played linebacker. That opened up. He didn't want that job, right? Auburn didn't want that job. There were a bunch of jobs that popped up that Brent Venables would have probably, I mean, I say the alumni there would have backed up a truck to get him there, and he said no. But when this job came open, Bob Stoops, right, Joe Castiglione, and OU's president, Joe Harris, decided to try to go get him, and they succeeded. And that sent everybody over the moon. Myself, the moment that I heard that Lincoln Riley was going to USC, I even tweeted Oklahoma head coach Brent Venables. I did not know any more than you would know that Venables would accept the job. And from the jump, the state of Oklahoma and its 3 million plus residents have embraced him. I've never seen the Memorial, I should say the Palace on the Prairie or Memorial Stadium with so many people attending a game for spring than I did this year because nobody has. It used to be about 55, 57,000. That was tops for Oklahoma to draw for a spring game. It's a really good number for anybody, quite honestly. I mean, yeah, just over 60 for Georgia. You had just under 70 for Ohio State. You had over 50 for Nebraska who shows up for their spring game, period. Uh, Alabama, I think, had something along the lines of 30. Oklahoma having 75,000 people show up to a spring game, to a glorified practice, is unprecedented. But that is how badly people want him to succeed 
and how on his side they are. He's also working with a group of people and quite frankly, a fan base that he knows intimately well. Something Lincoln Riley does not have at USC. Brent Venables is still revered, not just as a defensive coordinator, but as a linebackers coach that helped Oklahoma win its last national championship. And he has the same blessing that Bob Stoops gave to Lincoln Riley. That helps. That's a tremendous salve. He also was able to bring with him what I think is the most important position coach at Clemson in the last 10 years, and Todd Bates, coaching defensive line. Remember that 2018 defensive line that was destroying people at Clemson, right? That year that, hey, uh, Jimbo Fisher was waiting in line to see what, what Nick Saban was really hitting on. Yeah, all those dudes got drafted, and I think three of the four, all four, ended up getting drafted in the first round, something ridiculous like that. I know the Christian Wilkins went, Dexter Lawrence went, Cleveland Farrell went. I'm not sure about Austin Bryant. I'm going to have to go check my math on that. But schedule breakdown goes like this. You're at Nebraska on September 17th. There's a lot of people that just don't know college football that don't expect that game to be competitive because they didn't watch last year's Oklahoma-Nebraska game where Nebraska was in that thing all the way late. So much so that Darian, oh, say Darian, that we saw what was the most remarkable interception I think any of us have ever seen from DJ Graham. And we had people saying he should have batted the ball down. That's how tight that game was, right? I am looking at that game and circling it going, okay, they got Casey Thompson over there. They've added Trey Palmer. They have what I think is the best Juco running back, if not, you know, transfer running back in the country nobody's talking about. And Scott Frost has his back against the wall. He has to win this year. I don't know that you want to roll into Lincoln if you're Oklahoma with a new head coach and court all of that in a game that you're supposed to win, but I 100% believe you can lose because you look like losing it last year and you won 10, 11 games. Okay. Next game on there, or I should say this, this really this triple threat of K-State at Texas Christian and then OU Texas all in a row. One of those games is likely to trip you up. Is one of those games always trips Oklahoma up. That's kind of the thing. If you don't lose to K-State, you lose Texas Christian. You don't lose Texas Christian, you lose K-State. And then OU Texas is a crapshoot. Like it's four overtimes, right? And it, it feels like it's going to go to overtime no matter who plays who and who plays where and what the quarterback is, who the head coach is. That's just what that game ends up being. So I'm not putting a whole lot on them running that gauntlet unscathed. They can. I just don't expect them to. And Texas Christian is not the Texas Christian that they've been used to, obviously, because we got Sonny Dykes as head coach and not Gary Patterson. But Gary Patterson is now an analyst basically advising Steve Sarkeesian. So you've transferred that Texas Christian energy to Texas. That doesn't make me feel good either as an Oklahoma fan. And then November 5th, you have Baylor. Dave Aranda has demonstrated that he had Lincoln Riley's number. Be interesting to see if he have Jeff Levy's or, for that matter, Brent Venables, but they are the defending Big 12 champs and the defending Sugar Bowl champs, and they're really doggone good, especially now that they have a quarterback that I can trust in Blake Chapman, and that defense is going to be outstanding because that's what Dave Aranda does. He does defense like Lincoln Riley does offense. And then Bedlam is on November 19th. Yeah, that game, that's a revenge game for Oklahoma, but none of the dudes that lost that game are still here. Really? Like, you're talking about Caleb Williams. You're talking about perhaps a Mario Williams, right? 
and you're having some turnover on the defense. Mike Gundy's group, I think, could still be pretty good. It's all about, is Spencer Sanders going to develop into the kind of guy that doesn't turn the ball over? So you got to watch what I think is basically six games on a 12-game schedule. It's just a more difficult schedule than what USC has. Star players you got to know about for Oklahoma. Dylan Gabriel, obviously, right, transferring in. We expect him to be the starter from day one. Marvin Mims, who is a player that Riley was getting dinged for not including more in his game planning. Because we all know that Marvin Mims is a monster. Throw him the ball. But more than that, give him more opportunities to just touch the ball. I think he's demonstrated that he is Oklahoma's number one and should be treated that way. And then on the defensive side, Jalen Redman. That's the guy that Isaiah Thomas said on this show he expects to have a big game. Jalen had not really played football until he got to like high school. I want to say his junior year of high school. Still developing into what we expect to be an outstanding defensive tackle. And he's been battling injuries for his entire career. If he puts a healthy season, uh, a healthy season together, I could easily see him being a first-round draft pick. That's how he's being talked about just two years ago. He's that good. Let that dude develop. Some recruits for you to know. Javante Barnes, who I think is more like a Marcellus Sutton comp for Oklahoma fans that know. He is muscular, fast enough. We'll see. I, I We'll see. I'm just... You got Eric Gray there. You're you're okay. You're a okay running back, and you're certainly better off than you were in 2020. Kobe McKenzie at linebacker is a guy that I really expect to be great. Uh, there's a brilliant photo of Kobe McKenzie standing next to, I think, his comp in Kenneth Murray Jr. And Kobe McKenzie is an 18-year-old kid, and Kenneth Murray is a first-round draft pick. Kobe McKenzie is bigger and taller than Kenneth Murray is. At as a teenager, when Ken Murray's just drafted in the first round by the Los Angeles Chargers, it's it's ridiculous. And this was a dude that was thinking about reclassifying for a little while to get to Oklahoma, coming out of Lubbock. It was a very big deal for Oklahoma to get him. I thought it was wild that Texas didn't go after him. I think he could be an outstanding defender, let alone player for Oklahoma. And then lastly, for me, is Gentry Williams who is from Tulsa, went to Booker T. Washington High School. I thought that Gentry Williams could be racing in the next Olympics if he just stuck with running 400 meters. He's that fast. He's that good. He plays some corner for Oklahoma. It could be great. Maybe return some kicks, especially if they figure out what they've got in perhaps their secondary, but we'll see, right? Like uh, I'm not certain that the secondary is going to be as good as it could be, but that might be because Brent Venables and Ted Roof are still trying to install what they got. To say nothing of Billy Bowman actually sticking at one position as opposed to playing like eight. I still, I hope that Brent Venables knows something I don't in sticking him at safety because I look at Billy Bowman and I see a slot receiver. I see a DeMarco Murray type. I see a dude that I can also line up seven and a half yards deep. He is uh, dynamic with the ball in his hands. All right, so money question. Who will have a better year one, Riley or Venables? I'm going to push and say 10 games is the tops for both of these teams, uh, with the most pivotal games being Utah and Texas, respectively, Utah being USC and Texas being Oklahoma. I think that USC has an easier route to get to 10 wins. I think Oklahoma has a more difficult route to get to 10 wins, but I also think that Oklahoma is a more talented football 
team and more cohesive football team at this point simply because of the infrastructure. And I think it's one of the things that we don't count enough when we're talking about college football. It matters what people around the program think about the program. It matters how people talk about the program. It matters what parents say about the program. It matters what your governor says about the program. Not for nothing, but I'm not sure the governor of California even knows they got a program down there at USC. That's just me. I mean, Governor Newsom, you want to tell me that I'm wrong? Be sh- tell me that I'm wrong. I know for doggone sure that Kevin Stitt knows that we got basically one program in Oklahoma he got to worry about, and it plays in Norman, right? Like, this is why Nebraska football was just a gargantuan juggernaut for so long, right? It does matter that everybody's pulling in the same direction. So I'm going to go with 10 wins being the cap for both of them. Obviously, you could be better or worse than that, but... I think that Oklahoma is probably going to drop one of those games that I mentioned, Kansas State, Texas Christian, or Texas. You got to circle Baylor and Oklahoma State. It's just tough. It's just tough, right? SC, if you get past Utah, you get past Fresno State, you don't get tripped up by Notre Dame or Stanford or Oregon State, you should be just fine. You get to dodge Oregon. Okay, right? And now that the Pac-12 has changed its policy for how it's going to put teams into the Pac-12 championship game, you could end up there, not having to ever have to play Washington or Oregon, right? Anybody from that particularly saucy North division? I say saucy in air quotes because, you know, North Pac-12 North has not been much to crow about here of late. Okay, so now that I have disappointed you with saying that both of those teams could probably win 10 games, let's move to my super slept on candidates to be the most impactful transfer of 2022. Now, these are players that I think only the most diehard college football fan like myself cares or knows about. So much so that uh, producer Tyler was like, hey man, uh, I like to think that I pay a lot of attention to college football and I'm not sure I know half these guys. I'm going, oh, that's that's the point. Super slept on candidate, right? That means I did a good job. So at the top of the list for me is Ohio State safety Tanner McAllister. He was a safety at Oklahoma State, but he traveled with Jim Knowles to Columbus. I think he is a super slept on candidate because he already knows the defense that they're playing in. He's going to be counted on to teach it to the rest of the outstandingly talented defense at Ohio State. And if Ohio State's defense is even decent to good, I think Tanner McAllister is going to have a lot to do with why that is. Next on the list for me is Texas cornerback Ryan Watts. Former Ohio State corner who transfers closer to home. Coming out of Little Elm, this dude was just kind of a freak for me because he's super long and he's super fast. And if the ball's in the air, he's got a chance at it. He plays defensive back like you play wide receiver. And he's an outstanding young man. I'm really pulling for him. And I think that he could help Pete Kwiatkowski turn around what was a terrible defense at Texas and put them in a position not just win the Big 12 championship, but perhaps have their first sniff of the college football playoff ever. Next on this list for me, LSU cornerback Seven Banks, another Ohio State tie, was a starting corner at Ohio State when the portal came out playing for what I think is one of the better cornerback coaches in all of football, Corey Raymond, right? And then we'll see what it means for this defense to be good in uh, Brian Kelly's first year, who we'll talk about here later on this summer as we continue the new faces and new places. Yes, we're going to hit on that part, probably next to some guy named Freeman. 
Now, I want to move from seven banks to what I think is a really underrated move on the part of Baylor nose tackle Jackson Player. Player played nose tackle at the University of Tulsa, which is my alma mater, and was the best player on a 2020 defense not named Zayvon Collins. You'll know that Zayvon Collins was a first-round draft pick. The first first-round draft pick out of my alma mater since 1977, I believe, and then was followed up very quickly by Tyler Smith, who got drafted by my Dallas Cowboys in the first round of 2022. Very excited about that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Now, Dave Aranda has two defensive tackles that he can rely on, that can really be the spear on that three-man front that allows his outside linebackers and safeties to do work. I really like this move, and I think that it's going to help Jackson vault into the conversation for perhaps first-round selection. We'll see. Okay. After that, Michigan State tailback, Jarek Broussard, who's transferring from Colorado. He's the best player on what was a bad Colorado offense, but still, I think when Mel Tucker and that offense they want to run He's going to get his chances. Him and Jalen Berger back there are going to be battling to be the next Kenneth Walker III. I think that he has it to go. If you want to put the ball in his hands, you want to say, hey, go ice this game or go, go win it for us, I think Jarek Broussard can do that for you. Very excited to see what he does in East Lansing. And then at Arkansas, I'm going to go to Drew Sanders, who's transferring from Alabama to Arkansas. Drew Sanders is one of the better athletes that you just haven't heard about. Now, I say that knowing that he lost a job to Dallas Turner at Alabama and basically Will Anderson at Alabama. Both of those guys can play football, right? And if you're not going to get on the field, you're not going to get on the field. But knowing what Barry Odom's defense has been for Arkansas over the last three years, I'm really excited to see what Sanders can do in a defense where I expect him to start. Now, the last guy that I expected to be uh, just a destroyer of worlds was Levi Draper at Arkansas, and that didn't actually pan out. But... Drew Sanders is coming from Alabama, which has a reputation of late for playing outstanding defense. And frankly, Oklahoma hasn't had a reputation for playing outstanding defense since like 2010. Just like that. So I'm still going to ride with Drew Sanders here. And the last player that I want to acknowledge here is Texas wide receiver Isaiah Nair coming from Wyoming, where he was a monster after the catch. He was great with contested balls. And before we saw what it might mean for like Jaleel Billingsley or even a Jai Hall who may or may not end up in Texas. I was already saying Xavier Worthy on one side, Isaiah Nair on the other, Quinn Ewers or Malik Murphy or Hudson Card throwing them balls. You like that because you got B. John Robinson seven and a half yards deep and his Lamborghini, I might add. So I'm expecting Isaiah Nair to perhaps be a newcomer of the year in the Big 12. We'll see how that goes. Could be Quinn Ewers. I mean, Quinn Ewers goes off. You know what it is. Could be Dylan Gabriel. It's kind of why we were talking about it. A lot of moving and shaking in college football. A lot of moving and shaking even this summer. We'll see more recruits. We'll see more commitments. We'll see more transfers. Very excited to do this show. All right. That is going to do it for me. I want to thank uh, our associate producer, Tyler Wojak, who's uh, been captaining the ship uh, all week. And I greatly uh, appreciate the effort he puts into just getting to know me and understand me and understand hey look i want to talk about this going cool dude we'll do it uh our director john marcus who's outstanding uh who also is the guy who is all going to pull on me whenever i tell him that 
there was no overtaking in Miami. He's like, hey, actually, there was a lot of overtaking in Miami. Here's the stats. I also want to thank producer Catherine Donnelly, who has really helped shape this show into what it is and remains really one of my biggest allies uh, on this show. Our leader of screening is Rachel Cohn. Our social, social media maven is Javion Duncan. And yeah, I'm the host, RJ Young. I will see y'all next week. Deuces.